Today at the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in IndyCar guest episode with our man Michael Andretti. Michael, thanks for making some time here. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be on. Say thank you as well to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And Michael, we've got half a day's worth of questions. So I don't know if you know this, folks seem to like you. There's no way we're going to get through all of them. We're going to do our best to get through as many as we can in a little over a half hour or so. you got about 14 different racing teams to run. So um, let's just jump right off here with our man, Michael Everson, who asks, Michael, if you could share some thoughts on this compressed IndyCar schedule that we have, even these tight one-day events, and whether it makes more sense in a uh, COVID-19 world, given that people already have, uh, less time to devote to three-day weekends. Attendance obviously is not a big thing uh, that we're able to do right now. Are you a fan of these compressed weekend, quick go, go, go type things with no fans? Or would you rather wait until we were all clear to have full events pre-COVID? No, I think we definitely need to be doing what we're doing. I think Roger uh, Penske's doing a great job as people, you know, and uh, – trying to save the season and do the best we can and then, you know, uh, build on 2021. Um, but I think it's very important that we got out there, you know, especially at Texas when we ran there, I think it was really important for us to get on track and, uh, start to put all this COVID stuff behind us, hopefully. Cause there's beyond entertainment, Michael, there is a real business need here too, right? And obviously not asking you to get into your, your financials, but you have sponsors, B2B relationships. There is a need to get this machine moving just for the health of the teams as well beyond entertaining fans. 100%, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of our sponsors, you know, obviously were hit with this as well um, with their businesses. And and for them, you know, they're, they're holding back, waiting for the season to start before they start paying us. And uh, so that's why it was important to get it on track and, hopefully get things, you know, closer back to normal. But, um, you know, it's a challenge for everybody right now. And, uh, you know, I think it's all about teamwork and we all working together and, and, uh, you know, like I said, getting through this and build on a strong 21. Next question comes from Lance Snyder. It's an interesting one. It's one of strategy. This is Michael with several double headers coming up. How do you prepare uh, your team for such things, knowing that, of course, you'd love to go all out in both races, but is there any merit when we get to road America or Iowa and whatnot to say, hey, maybe don't go too crazy in race one, because like we saw with Takuma crashing in qualifying at Texas, maybe we don't get you ready for the second race. Is there a mindset adjustment there or no? Oh, for sure. You know, I think, but I think it automatically happens. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think if you look at, uh, you know, races where we've had double header headers, it seems like the Saturday race is a lot calmer than the Sunday race <laughs> because I think the drivers know that they have to survive to get to the next, next race the next day. And, uh, you know, so, um, and then it seems like they let, they go a little more wild on uh, Sunday when they know that, uh, if something goes wrong, that um, you're not going to miss the next race. Next couple questions here on team ownership. Uh, first one from Chad Hartzell says, Michael, you now run what could be considered a global motorsports entity. 
Chad's curious, who is the most influential individual in the development of your own business skills? Um, I have a team, you know, I think we have a great team, you know, uh, we have, uh, J.F. Thorman and, and Rob Edwards, uh, at the top that, uh, you know, we talk all the time every day and, um, you know, strategize, see where we're at, you know, uh, I come up with the crazy ideas of let's, let's do this, let's do that. And then Rob, Rob, it's normally put on Rob, then he's got to figure out a way to make it happen, you know? So, uh. Um, that's why but, he's gone uh, gray so quickly. All right. Exactly. Now we, understand. we made him go real gray. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but actually it's fun. Actually, we have a lot of fun with it. Um, strategizing and doing all that. You know, I think, uh, we have a great relationship at the top and, and I think because of that, it carries all the way down to the team. Staying on the topic of business, got a question here from Alexi Hrushko and another one from Matt Philpot. Curious the the mindset of business ownership for you transitioning from being a driver into someone buying into a team now taking it over and running it fully is this something that you had prepared yourself for is this a challenge that you looked forward to in the beginning and i I know i've asked you that before but at least from the fan standpoint it seems like a lot of folks are really impressed with how well you've done in both stages of your career well thank you um you know i've uh i think one i got lucky buying a really good team to start with that had a great base but um you know yeah i I started planning this probably three or four years before i retired because you know i i I saw dad when he retired and he, he he looked like a little bit of a fish out of water and it's like you know i gotta think about what am i gonna do after i give up the steering wheel and uh i always enjoyed the business side of the racing you know i was always i learned a lot off of guys like uh carl haas and uh and chip and and um so i think uh you know i i like that side of it and so i felt like it was a perfect um way to you know go from driving to to still staying in the sport in some way and that ownership made a lot of sense for me and uh and it's been fun. It's been very, very challenging in a lot of different ways. But normally, the the biggest challenge is obviously raising the money. You know, that's a, you know we're 100% run off of sponsorship. I don't have the deep pockets like some of the others, other team owners, and so it's a it's it's a stress stressful situation. It seems like all the time, you know, trying to uh, raise the money. That's and get the sponsorship, which is. A, the toughest side. Other than that, it's all, the rest of it is fun, challenging. You know, when you go into the office, you have so many different things th- thrown at you. You know, from the competition side, the engineering side, you know, the marketing side, the PR side, and just the plain business side. So it's uh, it's fun. You know, it never gets boring. That's for sure. Mention a name here that's brought up by one of our listeners, Robbie Berger, and says Michael. Could you share a favorite Carl Haas story from when you were with the team? And boy, it seems like Carl is someone who uh, a lot of folks have uh, fond, fond memories of. But anything fun or amusing from your time with Carl you might share? Yeah, probably a million stories with Carl. (laughs) (laughs) He was was Mr. Magoo, if you remember Mr. Magoo. Oh, yeah. The cartoon, you know, just oblivious of everything around him and 
he'd be walking down pit lane and he'd be knocking things over and things like that and <laughs> just keep walking like nothing happened but uh you know one funny story was uh i think it was 92 no it was 90 i think it was 91 hang on i'm trying to think yeah it was 91 <laughs> um we were at elkhart lake and uh i had just signed a contract with him for 92 um but there was a there was a clause in there about Formula One, you know that uh, uh, he said that he would never enforce that if I went to go Formula One, he would never stop me. And so in '91, I, I happened to sign a contract. This is something that not too many people know. I signed a contract with Ferrari to drive for them in '92. Really? And, yeah. And uh, so when I brought it back to Carl, uh, he said. I'm not going to let you do it. <laughs> I'm like, well, you said you were. So I was really, really mad at him. And the next race was Alcar Lake, and and we were staying at the same hotel, and and we're heading out race morning, and I wasn't even talking to him. And and uh, we get in our he, he's in the car in front of me, and we get in the car, and and here his his uh, his coat arm sleeve was sticking out the side of the door <laughs> when he closed it. <laughs> So the whole way to the airport, you see this thing flapping in the wind, and it's like, God, I want to be so mad at him, but I just couldn't stay mad at him. That that type of guy. (laughs) I've told this story before, and again, it's totally meaningless, but it might have been the 92 Laguna uh, IndyCar race, uh, and for whatever reason, I'd woken up later than I should have Sunday morning, race morning. As you know, the the two-lane road in and out of Laguna was just jam-packed back then. And I remember taking forever to get there, so mad I was going to get yelled at by whatever team I was working for and uh, had waited forever to finally make that turn to get into the track. And I guess Carl had woken up even later. And so I see him out of my right side mirror just barreling down the the side of the, like he's so far off the road uh, on the dirt, just trying to blow by everybody to pull in and uh, jump the line. And by chance, he happened to try and take a left and cut in front of me to get in just before I was about to turn. I'll tell you, I have never done a better job of blocking in my life, Michael, because I was like, hey, love you, Carl Haas, but screw you, man. If I'm going to wait an hour, you are too. So, yeah, the world didn't really apply to Carl too much. So the Ferrari side, I mean, that that's a fascinating one. Granted, 92 was not exactly a glory exactly one of the lowest years for them that car was not great uh right any thoughts uh retrospectively on not doing that deal because boy you thought 93 was a challenge with mclaren 92 might have really worked worked you hard yeah may have you know i don't know i mean it was a i think it was a three-year deal that i signed and uh so i you know i knew that and they they knew that it would take some time for me to get going and you know, Prost was going to be my teammate, and and uh, so I, you know, I felt like I was going to be able to learn a lot there, and um, you know, so you know, I thought it was a great opportunity. You know, <laughs> to drive for Ferrari right out of Indy cars would have been awesome. So it's something that uh, you know was really disappointing. It would have been cool, even though the year that year wasn't very strong. But you know, hopefully, if I could have you know run with. Uh, Prost, which at that time you were able to do unlimited testing and things like that. So I would have been able to be a lot more prepared and, and uh, 
And I think it would have been less political with me going to do that than it was when I joined McLaren. So I think it it would have been an interesting exercise, but unfortunately it never happened. Yeah, pretty uh, would have been a pretty awesome family lineage there too. Let's, time. let's go to uh, Kyle Donnelly. A uh, bit of a, a honest question here. What is it about Andretti Autosport and the Indy 500, Michael? Five wins there. Team always comes alive during the month of May. Strong practices, strong races across most of the cars. That can't be a mistake, right? And I know I'm asking a dumb question here, but a lot of teams show up to Indy every year, Michael, and not a lot of teams are consistent seemingly most years at the 500. Is there an approach? Is there a mindset, a plan? Is this Rob Edwards turning more gray? I don't know what it is, but is there <laughs> something you guys do that makes you guys kind of always locked in? Uh, well, we're never always locked in. There was a, was a year where we didn't make the field with two cars, so you know it's uh, you never know with that place. Um, but uh, yeah, we we just uh, we prepare real hard for that race because we know that that's the Super Bowl and uh, of, of our year. So we understand how important it is, and you know we really try to pay attention to all the details that it takes to, uh, you know, make a difference to your competition. And and uh, you know it's worked most of the time. Hopefully it'll work again this year, and hopefully we'll be a little more competitive than we were last year. We were almost there, but not quite. So hopefully we'll be there this year. But uh, you know it's always a challenge getting it right. I mean I think another team that really stands out in that way is Carpenter. You know, they, they always are real strong at Indy too. So, you know, they have, they seem to have some of the magic potion there. I don't know if we could live with a grumpy Alexander Rossi for another year. If uh, <laughs> things go down like they did last year as well. Yep. So yeah, for just for the betterment of everyone in IndyCar, he needs to have a really good day here in August. Um, yeah, so. Let's go to Luke Vance. You mentioned this crazy guy's name. Michael, what was it like driving for Chip Ganassi? And this is me adding in a little bit to this. How have you seen him change over the years since you drove for him in that one year when you brought Renard its first victory in cart? Yeah, and Chip's first victory, which really, you know, it's a proud moment for me, for sure, in my career. Um, Chip, uh, I mean, I can almost credit Chip, you know, helping save my career. You know, I really, I had two options that year. And I chose to go with Chip, and uh, I think I made the right decision. You know, we went out, and I think you could say, you know, we finished first in class. You know, the Penske's were so dominant that year, um, but we still finished ahead of one of them. You know, there was three of them. We finished third in the championship and won two races and got Chip his first win there and my first win coming out of, you know, Formula One. So it was uh, it was a huge year for my career. Um and I'm glad I was able to work with Chip. You know, we are friends, but it's funny, you know, when we were, when he would be on the radio, it seemed like we'd fight all the time. <laughs> There's a few times where uh, I kicked him off the radio <laughs> and then next thing you know, he's back on the radio and you know, we had a lot of that <laughs> fighting going, but, uh, you know, we, we, uh, uh, you know, that's one of my, uh, I don't know if you could say a mistake, but, you know, I probably should have tried a lot harder to stay with Chip. Uh, you know, because of, you know, where he went from there. But uh, I ended up going back to where I felt more at home with Newman Haas. But, um, you know, it would have been interesting if I had stayed with Chip for my career. 
you know, hindsight's obviously 2020, but, uh, you know, how is he today? I, I think Chip's still the same. I don't think he's really changed, you know, except he's probably just smarter just from experience. You know, I mean, he runs a, a fantastic organization, um, you know, and, uh, you know, they don't get results by mistake either. So, you know, him and Roger are the two that we're always trying to uh, to stay up with. And we know that if we beat those two, we're basically going to probably win the race. So, um, you know, ton of respect for him. This one here pulls at my little heartstrings, knowing how many years of my life I've spent working in Indy Lights. This one comes from Brian Burrell. Uh, he says he's the only full-time Indy car and Indy Lights entrant. And Brian says in all caps, thank you for that. What would you say to the other owners to help drive participation in lights? And I know I've asked you that question many times before, but this jumps out, Michael, as one that might have new significance, knowing that Roger has spoken on the record about wanting to maybe tweak the leader circle to offer some incentives for IndyCar team owners to get involved in lights. Any thoughts there? Because you've been championing this forever. Now it seems like the new owners of the series might be on the same page. What would you suggest as ways to get more folks like you from the IndyCar paddock in Indy Lights? Well, I think we're making progress. You know, we have talked a lot to Roger about it, and uh, I think he's understanding my position and, you know, understanding that, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, if you look at the drivers out in the series, um, you know, 80% of them came out of Indy Lights, I believe, you know, and and uh, when they come out of Indy Lights uh, and the whole Indy, Road to Indy program, they're ready to be competitive right away. I mean, you've seen it with so many of the, of the rookies that came out of there. And I think it's just, I think it's the best system going in racing. You know, if you're a young kid in go-karts, you know, that doesn't have much money, if you perform and you win that scholarship, you have a, sh- you have a shot at winning your, if you win each championship, you can get there for free to IndyCar, you know, and uh, there's no other series in the world that, that has that, you know, um, program like that. So, uh, I think it's fantastic. So I'm, I push very hard to support it, uh, push other owners to support it, but you know, they see it as a headache. So, you know, I think it's going to be up to the series to, um, you know, figure out a way to put incentives for, you know, the leader circle owners, you know, and I think Roger's been thinking about that, you know, what incentives do you put out? I don't know. There's, you know, one of the big ones that sticks out is, you know, allow you to get more testing, which obviously would improve your performance on the track, which then, you know, makes it that if you want to be competitive, you're going to have to, you know, be in, in the Indy light series to do it. So, you know, you, you, you got to come up with programs like that to uh, entice uh, uh, the IndyCar teams to do it. So it sounds like Roger is on board with it. Um, I think right now he said he wants to put it on the side until he gets through all this COVID stuff and, and then really start to put together a plan closer to the end of the year. So it'll be fun sitting down with Roger and trying to figure out a good formula to do it. And I'm overstating the obvious here. Everyone is thankful, Michael, that you run four cars in Indy Lights. But there's probably also some fear that you represent almost half the field with your single team. 
uh, you would love the competition and love to see a greater volume of teams just simply to create more health and stability within the series as well, right? 100%. You know, I would love to see 15 to 20 cars out there you know, every weekend. Um, but one thing you got to say, you know, even though there's, this is a thing that people don't understand, you know, say for instance, myself back in 80, 83, I was in Atlantic cars. Right. And in reality, I mean, there was about, I don't know, 15 cars in the races, but in reality it was, I was racing one, maybe two cars all year. Right. Yep. So every series has that. Right. But, and then you have, you know, the rest of the fillers, right. That are in the, in the, in the field. But in Indy Lights, I mean, there's maybe one or two guys that don't have a shot at winning a race. The rest of the is very, very tight at the front. So, in terms of experience of running up front and and uh, you know having stiff competition to win the races, I think Indy Lights, even though you only had eight or nine cars, is is one of the toughest series out there because you're racing seven guys, not one or two, you know, to win all the races. So. Um, you know, n- numbers are, are, you know, interesting in terms of the way uh, for appearance, but I think for actual experience, even if you had nine cars out there, those guys are learning a lot because their, their competition is really tough at the top. Well, look at the monsters the series has produced over and over and over again in recent years with maybe single digit car counts. So yeah, it, it proves that point exactly. <clears throat> Also, I think if you look at our record, I think just about every single driver that raced for us uh, made it to IndyCars for at least one race. I mean, that, that says something. You know, I, we put through a lot of Indy Lights drivers, and, and uh, I'm pretty sure every one, if, if not every one, almost every one of them raced in at least one IndyCar race. So that's, uh, that says something about, you know, the series in my mind. Absolutely. Let's move to a topic here where I know there's nothing but love and also a little bit of sorrow, and that is Cousin John. Uh, let's go to Jordan Darwin. He says, Michael, any good stories you might share about your cousin John Andretti? And he says it was really special um, to see him take that lap of honor at IMS. Um, and then also another question from another listener, John Wojnar, wondering, you know, any plans to maybe – Honor John when we do get to Indy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, we are doing it. You know, we have, uh, uh, you know, John sticker on our on all our race cars. Um, you know, check it for Andretti campaign that he he believed a lot in, and you know, I think he saved many, 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 many lives. You yes, know, with did. campaign. You know, and I think uh, that's something we talked about that we wanted to carry on for him. I know Jared is is very much behind it as well and which is his son and and uh you know we're trying to do that in memory of john um as for stories uh you know he has a new book coming out uh, i read some of the stories and john was amazing at remembering stories from when we were kids and things like that you know it's like i'm horrible at, at remembering that stuff and then when i read it or i or when i used to sit down with john i'd be like how the hell do you remember that? It's amazing. It's like, oh yeah, I do remember that. Oh yeah, I remember that. You know, but he was he was amazing at that. And and uh, I, I read a couple of excerpts excerpts from his book, and it's quite funny. Some of the stories and 
and uh, and it, it's uh, so I don't want to spoil it. I'm sure a lot of the stories that I would say would be in his book. So yeah, well, book. yeah. written by our, our mutual friend Jade Gers, uh, who I yep. know worked for you as well. And yeah, yep. Jade was kind enough to send along uh, the. It's just a PDF of it a few months ago, and you're right. This, oh man, iron trap for a mind. And a lot of the stories are hilarious. Him making his first European trip. Um, oh, that's, oh well, that, that's, and, I, and when I was reading it, I'm like, oh my god, how do you remember all those details? I, like, oh, I remember that now, but I didn't. You know, if you would have asked me about it, I wouldn't have, you know, told it anywhere near the way he tells it. Yeah, well, yeah, I, folks need to buy it, just period. Just yeah. need to buy it when it comes out. Let's get to a couple more questions, Michael, then we're going to let you back to your day. Uh, another one about traveling in general. This comes in from Carl Harden. Curious about when you were a kid, a true kid, did you get to do a lot of travel with your dad, uh, just following him to races, wondering about did you ever get to Trenton Speedway and some of the old tracks that – IndyCar no longer races that, but just uh, being the son of a race car driver, did you get to travel a lot with your dad? Hell yeah. I mean, we grew up at racetracks. You know, we were the track rats for sure. Um, you know, I remember all those racetracks still. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we got a little older, you know, like 12 years old or whatever, um, you know, then we started doing one-on-one traveling with dad when he was going to Europe and stuff. So, you know, that was a pretty cool experience. And, you know, so... You know, traveling was there from the moment we were born. You know, we, you know, I remember seeing, you know, my thing is I travel a lot, see a lot of airports, see a lot of racetracks, <laughs> see a lot of hotels. And, mm. and that's, you know, that's a, that's most of our traveling my whole life. But um, it's been, I got to say, having said that, it's been really strange. I think this is the longest probably since I was a kid that I've gone without traveling, <laughs> you know, with this COVID thing. It's been uh pretty weird i've told folks i've never never in my adult life michael been to fewer races in a a, over the span of a year i mean since june 1st of 2019 i've been to three races total (laughs) but it's the same kind of thing where you go boy my life is kind of thrown out of whack i had it in a groove there for a while what's going on yeah yeah, it's going to change here pretty quick, though. It's I know. It's going to get pretty busy. I know. All right. Let's, uh, let's get three more questions here. Uh, first one from David Simmons. Michael, what was it like being teammates with your dad and the two of you being ultra competitive? And for those who don't remember, there were indeed some magical, not as many years as we'd hoped, but there were a couple of magical years where you and your dad were absolute teammates and competitors. Bring us back to that time. What was it like? Uh, I think those were the best years probably of my racing, you know, racing with dad. Um, and funny enough, probably my best results as well. You know, it, uh, it was great. You know, we, uh, you know, we raced each other hard. I can tell you that. And, you know, dad was uh, always my toughest competitor especially the pass. There was nobody harder on the racetrack to pass. Whether I was lapping him or passing him for position, <laughs> he, he would make my life miserable. He would make me earn every bit of it, which, uh, you know, which is cool. And, uh, but, yeah, we've, uh, we've experienced so many, so many great moments as a family in racing, you know, which uh, other people, you know, there's, I don't think there's anybody that, can say that they've experienced what we have you know in the sport in that way and 
and uh, you know, those are those were definitely very, very special years, and and uh, you know, treasure them always. All right, we're gonna go to our friend from Holland, Peter Nutt, who asks, Michael, is there another generation of Andretti's we might see coming up? in karting or the open wheel ladder series anytime soon. And there are a lot of, you know, younger, younger Andretti's um, that maybe we don't know their names yet, but boy, it seems like there's a rich stock of potential talent who, uh, who are we keep an eye out for here? Hopefully. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, um, right now uh, I don't have any grandkids, so it won't be on my side from Marco or Marissa. Um, but uh, my son, Rio, whose actual name is Mario, we call him Rio, uh, is, is uh, six years old. And he's been bugging me about getting in the cart and trying it. So we're going to give him wow. a try here soon just to see how he does. I don't know. I mean, you know, hopefully he doesn't want to do it. But if he does, we'll get behind him. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge, definitely, you know, having your kid out there and, and stuff. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. Um, like I said, some ways I really hope he doesn't want to do it, but then there's other areas that I hope he does to carry on the name. So that, or Marco's got to get his butt going to, uh, have a son or daughter that wants to race. See, there we go. No pressure at all, Marco. Um, (laughs) one other quick related question talking about team ownership. How is Marco doing, uh, as you see as a somewhat newish team co-owner since he's co-owner of his entry how's he doing there well he's doing good there he's just uh i i mean i don't know man he's got the worst luck i mean good example was this last weekend you know at at, uh, texas he was he had a third third or fourth place fourth place car and uh you know we as a team let him down i think we had uh we spent like 20 seconds longer than in the the guy that spent the least amount of time in the pits, which is literally almost a lap. And, you know, every time he'd come into the pits, he'd lose positions. And, and, uh, so it was very frustrating to watch that. So he, what I'm trying to, my point is he's still very competitive. I think he's very, very talented. Um, he just has to get things to go his way for once. And, uh, seems like every time he's got something going, you know, either we make a mistake in the team or something stupid happens, you know, on the track or, or some other mechanical, you know, that we don't have any control over happens to him. It's just, uh, it's been very frustrating to watch it. Um, he should easily have 10 or 12 wins in his, in his resume and to only have two is, you know, I know very frustrating for all of us. So hopefully he can break the ice here. And, uh, you know, I think if he gets that one, hopefully he can follow it up with another couple. That'd be awesome. Having seen both, I'd love to see a third and more. Well, let's, uh, let's farewell the show with a question from a guy named Brian Herta. who sent in a question on Twitter. God, here we go. I know I saw it. Asking Michael, what's your favorite disco song? Oh God. I don't know. Has to be a Bee Gees song, right? From Saturday Night Fever. I mean, staying alive, you know, there you go. That's the one I was thinking. Staying alive. I mean, classic. Let's see, look at that. Who said Michael doesn't know his disco? Herna, whatever. Yeah, really. Come on, Trying man. to stump your fellow team owner here, Michael. Uh, thanks for taking some time. You always make a lot. Of, you always make a lot of time for me, which you know how much that's appreciated. And uh, just 
Looking forward to getting the season going and more stories coming from it. Say thank you as well to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We will speak to you next week.